Hello and welcome to St. Paul's United Methodist Church's Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Mike Agnew, and it's great to have you listening to our sermons. If you don't currently have a church home and you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit us on our website at www.cherokeemethodist.com. Now, today we are beginning a new series of sermons called Unsung Heroes. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at different people in the Bible who worked behind the scenes. So a lot of these folks are probably people you have not heard of before, or you may have forgotten about them. We're not talking about the people we usually think of in the Bible, like David or Samson or Jesus or Paul. No, we're going to talk about people who work behind the scenes. Because the thing is, some of the most important work is done behind the scenes. And so each week we're going to take a look at a different individual or a different group of people. And so today, in today's sermon, we're going to be looking at a number of women who worked behind the scenes to save Moses. And so as we do, as we think about this, we're looking at the book of Exodus, chapters 1 and 2. But to catch you up to where we're at in the Bible, the, the story of God's covenant with the Hebrew people begins in Genesis with Abraham. And he tells Abraham, God tells or promises Abraham that he is going to have many descendants and that the entire world is going to be blessed through him. And so reading through Genesis, we follow the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we have Joseph and all of his brothers and the story of how Joseph ends up sold into slavery in Egypt, but then he works his way up the ranks and becomes second in command. And then during a time of famine, his brothers come to Egypt for supplies to survive. And Joseph reconciles with them, and then the whole family ends up moving to Egypt. Sounds like a great thing. And when we get to the end of Genesis, it's kind of like a happily ever after. But not so, because when you get to Exodus A lot of time has passed, 400 years roughly, and times are much darker for the Hebrew people when we get to the sequel in Exodus. Uh, These folks have been slaves now for 400 years because the Pharaoh felt that they were becoming a threat. There arose a new Pharaoh who didn't know any of these other people from Genesis. And to give you a perspective for how long 400 years of slavery is, that's about twice the age of the United States of America right? So, I mean, it's hard to comprehend. It's basically forever. I mean, chances are most Hebrews had no memory of them being anything other than slaves. And so, it's into this dark moment that our our story occurs. Because the Pharaoh is still concerned about the number of people in, in, in his area, his region, the Hebrews, And so they're already enslaved, but he decides that he wants to engage in population control by having all the baby boys killed once they're born. Terrible thing, but something that in one form or another has been implemented at many times throughout history, unfortunately. And so, you know, Pharaoh makes his first big mistake, and that is but that he chooses to have the midwives, the the Egyptian people who help the Hebrew women give birth, he, he decides to use them as the people who kill the babies. Now, on one level, it makes sense. They're there right when the baby's born, so they would be the ones to do it. 
But Pharaoh underestimates their courage and compassion, and they refuse to do it. They refuse to follow the order of the Pharaoh. And so they don't do it. They don't kill the babies. They let them live. And eventually, two of the supervisors of the midwives are called to account by Pharaoh, and he says, hey, what's the deal? These children aren't being killed. And so what they do is they make up a lie. They say, oh, these Hebrew women, they are so vigorous and energetic when they give birth. They give birth before we even get there. Evidently, the lie works because the Pharaoh lets them off the hook. Now, immediately, what some of us wonder is, was it okay for them to do this? Was it okay for them to lie? But I think that in extreme situations like this, if we have to ask the question if it was okay for them to lie or not, I think we're missing the point and being a little bit too legalistic. And I mean, it makes sense. I, I don't know about you, but me personally, I have never been a part of an oppressed people group, so I have no idea what that's like experientially. But when you are an, a part of an oppressed people group and you feel as though your voice is going unheard and that you're uncared for by the dominant race, then there are times in which it is necessary to disobey. And sometimes it's impossible to follow the rules. And that was this was the case here. And so they did not feel like they could obey the rules and they felt like they needed to lie about it to protect the other midwives and to be able to keep their rescue operation going as long as possible. So it's kind of like in the situation in, during World War II when many people hid Jewish folks in their houses and then lied about it. You know, we, we don't need to ask, was it wrong to lie? In a dark situation, they chose the greater good. And I think that the same is true here for the midwives. So anyway, that's the story of the midwives. And then the Pharaoh ups his game and he decides, well, we're not just going to kill Hebrew babies. We're going to kill every boy, every Hebrew boy, not just the newborns. And so now pretty much every Egyptian is a part of this process, not just the midwives. And so it's in this situation that Moses' mother whom tradition names Amram. That's not in the Bible, but tradition says that's her name, so we don't know. But we'll call her that. Moses' mother, Amram, has a baby. And of course, it's Moses, but she has a baby boy, and she doesn't want her child to die. Imagine that. And so she decides she's going to hide him for a little while, no doubt with the help of a midwife. But she knows she can't hide this child forever, and so she creates an ark a little ark or boat, places the child in the Nile. And, you know, that, that sounds like a really reckless plan, a plan of desperation, and it is. And yet, there was not as much risk to this as it sounds like. She knew what she was doing. She coats this thing in tar, the same material used to coat Egyptian riverboats to make them waterproof. And she places the basket amongst the reeds. In the Nile River, the reeds can grow up to 16 feet tall. Okay, so if you place it along the banks of the Nile amongst the reeds, it's going to be protected from the main part of the river and the elements. And not only that, but Moses' older sister Miriam follows the basket to see where it goes. So the, the, things are well under control. Moses never really left alone. 
And lo and behold, either due to God's providence or perhaps knowledge, uh, you know, Amram's knowledge of what the Pharaoh's daughter does, the Pharaoh's daughter happens to be out bathing when she sees this basket. And she discovers this Hebrew boy and you know, she just can't stand to see this Hebrew boy killed. No doubt she knows that her father, the Pharaoh, wanted children to be killed, but she can't do it. And so she decides she's going to adopt this child as her own. Well, this is when Miriam comes out and says, uh, would you like me to get one of the Hebrew women to help nurse this child for you? <laughs> sure. And so she gets Amram, Moses' mother, to nurse him. So they have a reunion for a while during the nursing years. No doubt this would have been very courageous for Miriam to step out and do, uh, not knowing how the Pharaoh's daughter would react. So in this story, we have at least four women. We have Moses' mother, at least one midwife, probably more, his sister, and the Pharaoh's daughter, who are all willing to defy the Pharaoh to do the next right thing. I mean, they didn't have a master plan. They didn't have a an idea of the effects, the ripple effects of what they would do. They didn't set out to end a 400-year institution of slavery, and yet as a result of protecting and saving this child, that's what happened. Their people were set free after 400 years of slavery. That's not what they set out to do. They just set out to do the next right thing that was right in front of them. They just set out to to save this child because they didn't couldn't couldn't imagine to have this child killed. They wanted him to live his life. That's all that they were after. This story is a reminder to us that during dark, ugly situations, unlikely heroes emerge. And, you know, this same thing is true today. You know, we've already talked about World War II, and there are countless stories about that, I'm sure. During 9-11, heroes emerged. First responders, firefighters, policemen, just normal citizens who do what they can, even sometimes at their own sacrifice to help others. Whenever there's a mass shooting, we usually hear stories of people who either gave their lives or endangered their lives to help others in an impossible situation. And during this current pandemic, we see that our heroes are uh, doctors, nurses, uh, people in the hospital working in the healthcare profession, on the front lines of the work, even at a time when many people are questioning questioning the legitimacy of what they do, you know? So we see heroes emerge in these dark, impossible situations. And as I said, they didn't set out to change the world, but they did just by doing the next right thing. So what about you? How are you going to change the world? You know, usually when we think of changing the world, we think of big things like solving world hunger or going on an overseas mission trip. Uh, mission trips are good. Solving world hunger, awesome. That'd be wonderful. But oftentimes what happens is we just get overwhelmed by the enormity of the task, and then we become paralyzed and don't do anything. But here's the thing. You don't have to do anything huge or grand to save the world. Oftentimes, you just have to do the next right thing. And sometimes in impossible situations, that's all you can do is the next right thing. And you may have no idea the significance or impact of what you, of what, what you do will make a difference in the world even after you're gone. As I said, Moses' mother and sister, they had no idea that what they were doing was going to result in the end of their slavery. 
We don't know if Moses' mother lived to see the freedom of her people, but we know that his sister Miriam did. So the ripple effects of what they did carried on well past their lifetimes. And in the same way, you may do small things or what you consider to be small things, and you might not ever see the ripple effect of what that does until later in life. Or you might never see it at all. It might not happen until after you're gone. But that's okay because our motivation for doing the next right thing shouldn't be what we get out of it or the reward. It should be doing it because it's the right thing to do. I want to share some lyrics to you from a song. This is not a religious song per se, but I think it has a deep religious message. It comes from Disney's Frozen 2, and it's called The Next Right Thing. Hear the lyrics. I've seen dark before, but not like this. This is cold. This is empty. This is numb. The life I knew is over. The lights are out. Hello, darkness. I'm ready to succumb. I follow you around. I always have. But you've gone to a place I cannot find. This grief has a gravity. It pulls me down. But a tiny voice whispers in my mind. You are lost. Hope is gone. But you must go on and do the next right thing. Can there be a day beyond this night? I don't know anymore what's true. I can't find my direction. I'm all alone. The only star that guided me was you. How to rise from the floor when it's not you I'm rising for. Just do the next right thing. Take a step. Step again. It's all that I can do to do the next right thing. I won't look too far ahead. It's too much for me to take. But break it down to this next breath, this next step. This next choice is one that I can make. So I'll walk through this night, stumbling blindly toward the light and do the next right thing. And with that dawn, what comes then? When it's clear that everything will never be the same again, then I'll make the choice to hear that voice and do the next right thing. In dark, ugly situations, and in normal everyday situations, but especially in situations where you have no idea what to do, maybe you have no master plan, you, you really don't know what's going to happen. The only thing you can do is the next right thing. And it might seem really small. It might not get the accolades that some other people get for working front and center in front of everyone. It might be behind the scenes. But just by doing the next right thing, you can have a ripple effect that will indeed change the world. Amen. God bless and have a great week.